Welcome to Happy Path Programming. I'm Bruce Eckle. I'm James Ward. All right. Well, today we have with us Bill Frazier, who I think uh, I first met you as at a Java Posse Roundup or something as a fire breathing fire dancer. Was it something along those lines? Is that correct? Uh, fire juggler. Fire juggler. Yeah. True. True. Mm-hmm. I do remember you dancing with fire and breathing it. Is that all true? I think that was later, yes. though. I okay. think the first time he, he just came juggled. to the Roundup, he wasn't. And that was weird because <laughs> your um, administrative person, whose name was Mary Jane, yep. sent me a message that arrived at 4.20 p.m., I think it was on a Tuesday, and that you, you and Garrett had figured out that this was happening somehow and you had this last minute thing, but I thought it must've been a joke. (laughs) Yeah. I was in town grabbing coffee and the barista asked what I did. I said software. She said, Oh, you must be here for Bruce's conference. (laughs) I said, I am not. I just live here. She's like, Oh yeah. Bruce Eckle does this conference every year. Mm -hmm. Really? I was reading his book last week. I had no idea we were all in the same little town. But yeah, I'll go check it out. Right. Yeah. And so it's you been... just showed up at the uh, Java Posse Roundup. And... and both you and Garrett had these really long hillbilly beards. And I was like, oh, I don't know who these guys are. <laughs> yes. Well, and we thought we knew all of the nerds in Crested Butte. Well, that was the other shocking out, yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. There, there were more hidden nerds. Yes. Well, that was a recent transplant at that point. I had right. been here less than a year. And oh, yeah, I didn't realize it was that soon. I hadn't really integrated with. And you own. had pretty much only been doing Java at that time. No, no, you had also been working in C++. Yeah. So, so I guess stepping back a minute to my career background, I did a standard computer science degree. And that was probably 90% C++ and with the occasional delving into other languages, assembly, Lisp, Python. All the useful stuff. Yeah, it was an old school curriculum and uh, plenty of stuff that I've never used since. So not Java. Uh, no, I, I had oh. not touched Java all through school. Oh, wow. But your that first was, job was in Java. My first job was in Java. I graduated from college and started looking for jobs out in Utah. I was just scanning postings every and morning. And that's because you like the environment there. Yeah, I had been snowboarding out there <laughs> the my senior year of college. And so that, SDD snowboarding driven development yes absolutely uh Uh, that was i wrote it on you know one of my goal lists you know before graduation was just find a way to move to utah and snowboard and also do software (laughs) and yeah that ended up being java was what i could get my hands on and my mom had luckily bought me it was one of the early Amazon tablets, a fire maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. And she got it to me or gave it to me as an e-reader just to use like a normal person. But it was the first Android device that I ever got my hands on. Oh, wow. 
And I was able to use that to just kind of get my feet wet with Java, made some... So you're building Android apps for the Fire Tablet. So you started Java. by building Android apps. Huh? Yes. Okay. And that would end up being the only Android app I ever made. <laughs> right. You know, it was very basic, but it was enough to get a feel for the language. Hmm. And Did you make the uh, Crusty Butte bus scheduling app? Was that the... <laughs> no. That would come much later using wildly different technology. And so you worked for two companies that use Java for healthcare database kind of management stuff. Yeah. So it was all backend Java. That you yeah. Were. So my first job was at Solution Reach, a medical and dental company. And yeah, that was using almost exclusively Java, but there was one project where they gave us a little more freedom to explore. And we did a Scala play application. Uh, my friend, coworker, Tyler Open at the time, we kind of went off, did the Scala project, did it in a way that would, you know, make any full-time Scala developer cringe because it was Java without semicolons. Yeah. And we were probably even putting semicolons in right. at that point, right. you know, it was just, it's a new Lots language and mm -hmm. yeah, I think the files just ended in dot Scala. That was really yeah. the only difference. And yeah, play obviously is Java. Well, it's Java ish. It actually is a Java framework. If you, choose you know it's yeah. java, or, java scala. or scala so yeah we built a project using scala there and that just put it on my radar and at that point in time i was still 90 95 java a little bit of scala and then just generally tinkering with other languages mm -hmm. whatever came up but at but, that time you were still like Oh, Java's okay. It does the job. You weren't beginning to have the frustrations that you did later. Yeah, I, I didn't have anything to contrast it with, mm. really, um, because, yeah, the way I was writing Scala wasn't fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was a little more streamlined. Because I remember when you, at, at another job, when you went and experimented with Kotlin, you came back saying, the getting rid of the null pointer exceptions is worth the cost. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if, if that was all that Kotlin did, I would have happily adopted switched it. Yeah. over okay. um, because I was spending so much time in code reviews with newer developers at that point, just having to hammer in, Oh wait. Yeah. You, you, you checked for null up here, but you didn't check for it down here after this. Function and, call. You know, at this point in time, we actually have no certainty anymore what the state is. And you it's know. such a mental burden. The best place to check for nulls is in production when you get the null pointer exception. That's so easy to and, troubleshoot. Right. Because then it's doing the actual thing. We're, we're joking. But um, I was telling James that I encountered a, a tweet in response to something, and the person was asking, well, isn't a null pointer exception the easiest thing to track down and find? And nobody's responded to him. And because I think nobody can figure out, is he joking or 
does he actually think that mm. because he hasn't had enough experience? We mm. nobody knows. It's too no. subtle. It is clear in what the problem was, but where it originated, that is still a total mystery when mm -hmm. you get that null pointer. Why is this thing null? I don't know. Yeah. Um, so maybe some background. Uh, Bill is our co-author in the effect-oriented programming book that we've been writing. So we've been able, the three of us have been able to spend a lot of time working on the book and, and then just generally hanging out in Crested mm -hmm. Butte and being mm -hmm. nerds together. Um, so it's super fun to have Bill on and hear his journey to Zio and Scala and Scala 3. Yeah, because and... you were, I remember you were starting to get into Zio because you had discovered it first. I don't remember who figured it, who, who came across it first. We were at a, a winter tech forum when we started exploring, uh, even when it was not Zio, but what was it called before that? It's like Scala Z effects or something. Oh, you mean just yeah. the idea of an effects system. But it was John Degos working on it in, oh, in the see. Scala Z code base. Yeah. And I eventually like forked it out of there. But Right. Yeah. But it just seemed like, I mean, I remember because uh, you were looking at working for Zyverge, but it was kind of like, oh, you know, that's, that's an impossible dream. <laughs> Yeah, so we've jumped forward a little bit here. Um, so you're you were a happy um, Java developer, and then started seeing some um, I don't know different ways to do things. It might yeah. make life easier. It might make life well, easier. There was just a certain point where I, I looked at my GitHub and I realized all of my personal projects where I got to choose the language had been Scala for four or five years at that point. And it was just increasingly jarring that I was getting stronger and stronger with this one language. And then and doing every... Scala in a way that took more advantage of what Scala brings yeah. to. <laughs> it, it, it was a journey of years to get into the more functional side of Scala. And it sure is. But the deeper you got into it, like, myself, the more I kind of didn't want to write Java anymore. Yeah, because early on, I'd figure out one new twist that Scala provided, and I would be able to replicate it in Java without too much trouble. It was a little awkward, but you could do it. But then as you just go further down the path, you realize, okay, I'm contorting Java and trying to use it in a way that it was never designed to be used. Can't and, you just use const everywhere? Uh, yeah. Final. But, but you know, even when I started seeing people doing that with code before having enough, uh, I guess, depth of functional programming, I would look at going, why is this jerk putting const everywhere? It's just making my life. Right. Well, and I, th I think that is true. Like, even with the advantages of immutability and everything, trying to do it and enforce it in a language where that is not the focus. It's not the idiom. You just spend so much time fighting. Yeah, and... Oh, the joys of not having if else be an expression. <laughs> yeah. As an example. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. All those things. So, those things. yeah, once I had that realization of, oh, I actually am a Scala developer, even though I'm still writing Java at my day job, that's, I'm just drifting further and further away from that. I started looking at jobs, 
exclusively for Scala, just decided it's time to make the change. And I made that jump. I joined a company called Axani, a finance company based out of New York City, and worked there for a while. And it was a really great experience. You know, they were doing, you know, maybe not the ideal style of Scala in my mind. But at least it was Scala. <laughs> yeah. And they were they were making steps towards, you know, the the way that I wanted to be writing code, some projects more than others, but the most significant, you know, takeaway from that job was meeting Kit. Kit Langdon. Kit Langdon. Yeah. Who we had on the show a while back. Yeah. 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 And encourage everyone to go listen to his episode because Kit is uh, just yeah. so enthusiastic mm-hmm. and always pumping out new crazy fun artistic projects Mm. uh yeah so so he you were working with him and and he was working as a consultant from zebra no no. he was he was just a regular employee he was exactly as i was just a Mm full-time employee at this company and when i was doing some kind of goal setting for the next year you know, one of the things I said, because Kit was on a different team and we had just had some kind of side conversations and really clicked and realized like, okay, this, this guy is doing the right stuff. And I told my manager at the time, all right, my main goal is work on a project with Kit. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't really care what the project is. I Mm -hmm. just want to. It was like, oh my God, your coworkers with Kit. Amazing. Hopefully (laughs) you two can work together more. Yeah. And then, so I go in, I tell my manager that, and then I talk to Kit later that day, and I think I brought it up, and he was like, oh, man, I'm sorry to tell you, but I actually just put in my notice. Um, I'm going to be leaving soon. And I asked him where he was going. Yeah, just reeling from this devastating news, and... (laughs) He said the one answer that just made the most sense that he was going to Zyverge, which is the county behind Zio. Yes. And I had seen all the open source work that Kit was doing, just building on top of Zio and just giving it more functionality. And it, it, it was much easier for me to accept. I was like, okay, you're leaving, which sucks, but you're going to the place where you belong. <laughs> That's great. So yeah. even if I stay here, like I'm going to benefit from you being over there. You're going to. And you all were, cool were, were bringing Zio into the code base there in some yeah. ways, right? So you were already kind of doing production Zio work and seeing some of the benefits of it. And... Seeing some of the benefits and seeing some of the pain points. And I think that's what really drove Kit to work on Zio Magic. Uh, which the name doesn't tell you much, but the main thing that it does is, you know, there's this concept of layers in Zio, which we might get into later. And his library just radically simplified working with those and reduced a lot of the pain. So yeah, he says that he's leaving, going to Zyverge. And I continued on at Axani for a little while, but... I was still talking to Kit and he was just saying how amazing it was working with this new group. And 
we had a conversation where I said I would eventually, you know, submit an application there and try to join. Yeah, this is some sort of miscommunication happened and he just told them, Hey, this guy wants to join now. Like, let's start the process. Or maybe not miscommunication. I, yeah. I, maybe he knew exactly what I had said mm-hmm. and he just decided to. Says, yeah. Well, let's just see what Take happens. the initiative. Yeah. We need somebody now. So let's just see what. And, and you're, you're, he knew you well enough to know that you were a good fit. Yeah. So what at this point, we'd already valuable. started working on the book. Yeah. I'm programming. And yes. We, so you, you, dove deeper into Zio and we're, we're already getting to be a pretty expert level developer with it and, and I, and I, teaching others about it, which was at that point in time, I'm not sure if it was effect oriented programming yet. I think it might've still been atomic Scala three, mm. which oh, that's right. That yeah. was the original idea yeah. is yeah. just, Scala. this is going to be a full language, you know, exploration. Yeah. And, I don't know how long we had been doing that. It was at least six months before. Just looking at Scala. Yeah. And I know as we got more into the weeds of various features and realized, okay, this is something you can do with Scala, but. Well, you and James had been both exploring Zio for a while. Yeah. And rather than exploring every nook and cranny of Scala, that we never actually used in our day to day, we started reorienting on, okay, what can be the through line of a book that, you know, addresses the type of software that we are writing and just looking at some arcane operators that Scala gives you. uh, I don't know that. I remember there was this point where we were like, we don't want to teach people things that we would later tell them never to use. Yeah. And, and when we were doing this complete language overview, if we were going to honestly do that, we had to teach them things, these concepts. Yeah. That, yeah, they would be like, you can do this, you can, but don't you can overload really long operators. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I describe Scala to people now as an experimental language, which has features that have not, you know, necessarily been good, you know, been viable experiments in the long term. And so I think that puts perspective on it, because if you look at Scala and you go, oh, you have the ridiculous operator overloading thing. Oh, we don't actually do that anymore. You know, and it's like you don't know that from. Yeah. And coming from java just in my time running the language through like a sifter and Mm -hmm. like oh there's some really good things that like fall the you know that become the the good stuff Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and scala from five ten years ago it was just operators everywhere Mm -hmm. it was you know we have these crazy dsls and implicit conversions that That was one where it's like oh god let's not do that anymore and and the the classic example of martin talking about the fold operator where it's a a colon and a slash and it looks like dominoes in the direction but which direction that's always been my problem well well, but the fold left and fold right have the 
forward slash and backslash. So exactly. I know very that's gravity gravity my dependent. direction. It's very but, gravity but sometimes Which it's direction from is the gravity? end that way. Yeah. From the beginning that, yeah. So it's like, no, I, I've never really internalized it from the direction of the slash. You, you have to understand gravity to know which way it's falling. It gets tricky. And which direction it's falling from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're, we're, uh, we're beginning to work on this book, diving further into Zio, and you're interviewing at Zyverge all of a sudden. Yeah. And at that point, I guess maybe we had just made the shift because I think it was more Zio oriented at that point. I in think time. it helped possibly helped to the interview because you said you were able to tell them you were working on a book on Zio. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I, think I, even I, I do remember some that. of the content so they could yeah. see your kind of knowledge and the mm -hmm. way you were teaching Zio. And... Yeah. And because we're doing everything at least currently open source, you know, every scrap of work that we do on the book, it's up on GitHub for everyone to see for better or worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and I know that might not always be the case. We might button it up at some point whenever we actually go to sell it. But for the moment, it's out there for anyone to critique mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. steal or read. You see somebody commented on my commit where I fixed Booker. I don't know how this person noticed that, you know, I made some change in my GitHub action, changing the way that we load Graal VM in and saying that, oh, you don't need this step. I'm like, whoa, someone's watching what we're doing. Out of all the things that I thought someone might look at and comment on that bit of tooling, I was not expecting. That was great. But hey, if yeah. that's what they're interested yeah. in, they yeah. can... Pitch in, give us some eyeballs. Help. Yeah, that's it. Many eyeballs. So you got the job at, at Zyverge and yes. now I've been full-time Zio and working for customer and yeah. And then, oh, I do want to get into the work you've been doing in contributions to Zio2, which, oh, Zio2 just came out and was announced uh, like a week ago today, right? So Yes, it um, is so, officially yeah. out there. So that was part of the reason for having you on today was <laughs> to talk about the Zio2 release. Um, in well, right. And one of the interesting things about that is that they had put it into, what is it, you know, release candidate status. Mm -hmm. And then started making all of these <laughs> amazing changes. And I, 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 I totally understand that because when i get a book to what i think is the end then i you're like i'm so close and then suddenly i'll start see, you know i'll see something new and i'll go oh well i can't and because i've tried that before it's like yeah. no if you if you don't fix it you will be so regretful but anyway the point i was making was that they were able to do those things and that seems to speak pretty highly of the whole Zio framework that they can do such dramatic changes and not worry about busting the whole system. Yeah, absolutely. It's, there's a pressure that an RC puts on you. And one approach you could take is, oh, we're so close. Let's just get this thing done. Well, RC means we're not going to make any changes. Yeah, we're not going to make any big changes. <laughs> and the philosophy from Zio was, 
well, we really need to like fix this one thing. And then that happened like with like a dozen different areas oh, yeah. of Zeo. But huge but, improvements. But I don't think, oh my God, mm-hmm. I'm so thankful that, that yeah. they did it the way they did. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they, I don't think it took the pressure of NRC to probably reveal and push to focus well that's what that's what i was saying you know it's like you get the whole book and you start seeing it in its entirety and then for some reason those things pop up at you because you're not trying to create new material anymore you're just like saying how does this look and they were able to the fact they were able to do that is what impresses me more than anything because like i mean like i build systems into into a book so that i can do that but most software it's like oh no you know we can't we can't start adding new features after the release candidate that would be ridiculous but they were able to re-architect it practically i I think they were just grinding through a lot of the minutiae and gory details and then once they got through enough of that you kind of reach this plateau and you can take a moment to look around and reassess mm. and realize has is terrible. Let's get rid of that. Yeah, this <laughs> this thing that perpetually confuses new and advanced users. Fortunately, I never had to understand it. So it's like yes. And I'm still dealing with Z01 code bases at work, and we probably will be for you know, several months as the migration happens across the ecosystem. But whenever I come across has now, I just grimace because you know I, how much better it can be. <laughs> and it's it's hard to spend, you know, potentially days trying to teach a developer this concept that we've completely obliterated. It in turns ZO2. out it was just a useless abstraction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so Yes, as far as these huge changes in the RCs, I, I don't know the exact history. I wasn't following it as closely for Z01. I was watching it as they approached the 1.0 release, but I think they might have got above 20 RCs. And um, I, I, I don't know if they were changing as radically as they were in Z02, but I know Adam, John, Kit, Daniel, they're all trying to keep their eyes on the long-term goals of this project. And yes, it does punish the early adopters who have been following your release candidates. And we got burned by that in some of our book changes Uh where, you know, I think it was between RCs like two, three, and four, they removed all this stuff and then re-added it. And so it was a lot of churn for us trying to keep up with them. But I think on the whole, maybe a couple dozen people felt the pain of that versus thousands, tens of thousands of people once we actually release this thing broadly. I remember beyond, when I was on the C++ Standards Committee right at the beginning when they were going from C++ without templates to templates. And people were saying, oh, this is going to break all this existing code and everything. And Bjarna said, um, he said, yeah, we we have only a tiny fraction of, of you know, the users that are going to be, it was definitely long-term thinking and just going, yeah, and this will be painful now, but the benefit will vastly outweigh hmm. 
the, the, the cost. And I think that's the way you have to look. I mean, that's mm -hmm. my attitude. I'm, I'm happy to break old things to make the future better. And you, you might lose some people in that mm -hmm. transition, but I think by and large, those early adopters are the most passionate people about your project. And I think they're going to cut you more slack of just recognizing, okay, you're figuring things out, you're improving it. This hurts today, but it'll be years of improved experience mm -hmm. moving forward. And I know that is one of the big goals of ZO2 is just getting more widespread adoption, which I guess is the point of every project to some degree. But I think ZO1 was a proof of concept in a lot of ways. And it was really great for that. I know they have managed to just make minor releases on it, that there's not a ZO 1.1 point anything. It's all 1.0 point. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think we're up to 15 now. Uh, so we've had no breaking changes mm -hmm. over the last two years or so that it's been out. So uh, was the stimulus for ZO2 the uh, Scala 3? Did that, did that kind of... They, from my understanding, ZO2 has not really taken advantage of any Scala 3 stuff. Okay. ZO3 will be where they uh, actually like make ZO be Scala 3 okay. uh, I guess based. Sense, yeah. And so... Um, then they can take advantage of Scala 3 specific features. But today, I think ZO2 still works with Scala 2. So I realize we've been talking, we, we may have lost some people by talking about the details. And what I would like to do is back up a little and say, what problem is ZO solving? Because I think a lot of people, you know, it's like we're going, hey, this wonderful library. What does it do? Why would I use it? Well, and you've used it yeah. in production, so you've solved real problems uh -huh. with it. So you have an interesting perspective on it. Yeah. Uh, so I guess their kind of mission statement, you know, in one respect, it's meant for, you know, asynchronous concurrent operations. I think that's what the homepage still introduces it as is a library for that. But I think it, it it solves much more rudimentary day to day problems of even if you aren't doing very complicated asynchronous workflows, I still think your code base benefits from using Zio. And so Zio is it's an alternative to some of the more kind of category theory oriented Haskell oriented. Yeah. Where you just are given this pile of concepts of here's functors and applicatives, and we have built all these things. And if you and already understand functors and applicatives in that, you know, that then it makes sense. But it, if you're coming in from some other, standpoint then it maybe is because i tried to understand um one of those systems and it just immediately became overwhelming and so as i was getting deeper into the scala world i would 
sit down and think, okay, Kleisleys, I'm going to really focus on these and spend days or weeks just trying to understand this. And I would get to a point where I reasonably understood it, but then it was just this floating concept that I couldn't connect to the rest of my application. I, I couldn't just bring in this one small piece. It was, okay, you have to understand all of these components and rewrite your entire application for these things to all interact with each other. And that might just be my personal failing lack of drive or focus or something, but I just, I could never make the transition. And with Zio, that was the first time that I saw this tool and the Zio data type itself, you know, it explains what you need from the environment to run your code, how it could fail and what the result type is. And those are the three main things that it covers. And I actually saw useful examples of Zio and you could take just a piece of your code, start structuring it in this style and then you could say, all right, I want to do an unsafe run on this little piece of code here. And I was able to go from, okay, I've just got this one network call that I'm using this Zio data type for and just have it slowly percolate through. And then, you know, over the course of a couple of weeks, I realized I had got my entire application reformulated to use Zio, and so you can like incrementally adopt the approach in pieces mm-hmm. instead of having to go whole hog on it from, mm-hmm. from the beginning, which can be hard in the existing code base. So, for example, that network call that you mentioned. So, there's a normal thing that programmers are used to having to do to make the call and to guard against all of the issues that might happen. And my understanding is that. Most or all of that extra stuff that you have to do has been folded into Zio. Yeah. And if you just wrap any sort of call that might throw an exception in a Zio, then it will say, all right, you've got a throwable as your possible error type. And that's kind of the first step is, you know, before you fully embrace Zio and just maximize your type safety and defining all of your error possibilities. You can just start with simply wrap it in Zio. So it's not gonna throw an exception anymore. It's always gonna come It'll be returned as your error value. And then you decide what to do with that channel. So when I make a call, instead of just getting back the quote unquote result from the call, I'm getting back an object, a Zio object that wraps the result what might go wrong, what might have changed in the environment or whatever, uh, what effects I, I yeah. may have had. So, so now I'm getting a bigger thing back mm-hmm. and I have to say, deal with the error in yeah. this case. It says you have to write the code to deal with this error. Yeah. You don't have to have to, but it feels really bad if you don't. <laughs> you have to, if you choose to ignore it, you have to use scary method names like or die. Where now it, which is, Nobody wants to die. it's much more obvious than just having yeah. an exception that you're ignoring. 
your app will fail if you don't deal with this. Yeah. 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 So. And, and that makes it really easy, you know, in a code review mm -hmm. setting of, okay, if you're not familiar with all the moving pieces here, I'm just looking at this one file that somebody else wrote and I can see that they're calling or die. Okay, that's that's a big red flag mm -hmm. of okay, our, our application's ours. going to die here. Uh, is that what we really want like, to happen? This, this ergonomic is... typed or uh, um checked exceptions. Ergonomic checked exceptions. It's like giving you the benefits of checked exceptions, which there uh -huh. are benefits of checked exceptions. It's like the compiler is going to be like you need to deal with this. Mm -hmm. but making it or ignore it yeah. or, explicitly or explicitly ignore it, it which yeah. is what often happens yeah and i would say it's it's checked errors because you can use exceptions for all of your error types but you can use just plain old values it can you be can use a string a string <laughs> and there are a lot of times where that's really all you want is just an error message because at this point in time you're just you're logging it somewhere reporting it to the user and at that point, you don't actually care about a stack trace. You're right. just saying, okay, we have to tell the user that something went wrong. And one, one thing we've discovered with Scala 3 is that it gets even ergonomically better when you combine this approach with Scala 3, because then Scala automatically some types your your error channel, your error types together. And so you, if you have a Zio that can produce a foo error and a Zio that can produce a bar error, and you combine those two Zios together, you get a new Zio which can be the error type is a foo or bar, a some type on, on yeah. those. Whereas before, the Scala compiler would bring that up to a product, the highest common type of those. Well, product if it was a case class, right? Um, whereas now it actually creates a new anonymous type that is the sum of the two. So, and it just does it automatically, and it's so cool. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we've encountered while exploring Zio 2 and Scala 3 is these kind of astounding error messages. <laughs> and, I'm, and now, I mean, I remember seeing them and going, oh, I think this is the best error message that I've seen. But we, had, we weren't, or I wasn't clear on, was that coming from... Scala 3, or was it coming from Zio's? Uh, I think we've seen it in both. I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Oh, it's okay. it's yeah. both. Uh, Scala 3. Nature and nurture. It <laughs> improves the error messages, but. Kit has done a lot of work on the layer assembly. The layers are how you define the environment in Zio and assemble it into a graph of, of things that are needed. And the error messages now around environments and providing them and when you're missing something or you've discovered when it's when you have a cyclic dependency. Mm -hmm. right? it, yep. point, it, it says it, that's an error, which I was. Yeah. 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 It keeps coming up with this information that I'm used to having to track down myself. Yes. And it's, and it's the compiler doing it, whereas yeah, most dependency right, injection frameworks time. are like at runtime. It's like, oh, you Just, didn't give me one of these. It's like, are you why couldn't you tell me that at compile time? Yeah. Yeah. So going back to the Zeo magic that Kit made for stitching together all your dependencies and you know, that gave you a lot of extra power. But now that it's been absorbed into Zeo core, He's just taken it further and further of, 
okay, now it still stitches together all your dependencies, but when something goes wrong, it gives you a level of detail that you just previously wouldn't have thought was possible of, you want to run this application, you gave us these nine dependencies, but we need these other three. And it will even tell you, we need these other three to create these other pieces of the application. And it gives you just the whole layout of your application. Or actually, it gives you the subset that is relevant to your problem. Yeah. It doesn't dump out everything. It just says, here's the problem area in your graph. And you just start plugging in those missing pieces. And it very incrementally walks you towards a working application. So it seems like in Java, with dependency injection, you could spend a lot of time tracking that kind of issue down. Oh, yeah. So you could imagine, well, which, which you've done in production systems, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And so, but, but you only know that after you've made this change, you can look back and go, oh, I would have wasted so much time and money of my employer's uh, finances by doing this, but the people who are actually programming in Java, that's just the problem. That, you know, it's just another problem you have to solve. It's just how you do it. And in, in Z01, there, there was much more of a cost of restructuring your application in this style. And you would eventually get the benefits, but it was, you had to kind of wander through this forest of, mm. you know, setting up this boilerplate that you might not really grasp why you were doing it but now the simplest approach is also the one that gives you the best error messages mm. where for most of your layers you can do a one line snippet that will take your type and basically transform it into a layer and once it's in a layer you know, Kit describes them as these Lego pieces of, you know, all the different mm -hmm. dependencies for your application. They're these units and you can snap them together. And yeah, I think Z01 did that. But now with Z02, they're not just Legos. They're kind of magnetic Legos and mm. self-orienting mm. of they're going to find everywhere that they are needed and insert themselves and everything that needs them or that everything that that layer needs, it will go and find that as well. So it seems like there are these pockets, like we talk about dependency injection. So if you've had a really awful experience once with dependency injection, that might make you go, all right, I don't want to do that again. I'll move to this thing. But then there are all of these other, well, concurrency as we've been exploring and everything where you could have had nightmarish experiences and go, okay, I would rather not do that again. So yeah. that will make me concurrency and async. Mm -hmm. Just the programming model gets so much easier for doing it in a way that is correct. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about mutexes and semaphores or, you know, locks. Uh, obviously we, we've been dealing with locks recently in our book code, but as an end Zio user, in most cases, you just type Zio dot and then check your tab completion options. And you'll see for each par, and just all of these methods that match what you want to do. It's not 
telling you like, oh, this is an arrow or something, which is hard to connect and you have mm -hmm. a visceral understanding of it. You know, more often than not, you just type dot and then type a word that seems relevant to what you want to do. And you might have to try a few synonyms, but just type in par and then see what sort of parallel operations come up. And then you can check their type signature and they're going to guide you. So just cargo cult your way into your solution. Well, so I, the I, alternative, I mean, I'm a fan of that, you know, well, if, if I can get it to work. The alternative you know, is that you have, have to, to understand the algebraic laws that your thing needs to abide by and then figure out how to assemble the algebraic laws in the way that is correct for your So it seemed thing. like usability, that that kind of programmer usability. Oh, here's a goal of ours. We want to be able to say, take your Zio object, do dot, and be able to guess your way to a solution yeah. rather than having to understand a huge amount of things in order to figure out what you're going to do next. And ad addressing the cargo culting, I would say, you know, that's when you copy paste blocks of code to do okay. what you want yeah, and yeah. you say i don't know what this is sure but there's a comment at the top that says it planes will land here what if I you need. build this tower right right yeah Where, you're right you're right no that's not the cargo belting is not a good example but somehow just kind of i don't know fainting your way into <laughs> f-e-i-n-t it's it's very explorer friendly oh uh, i like that it's there are cases where I need to jump over to the Zio documentation site and try to look up something very mm. particular, but it's a very different experience than some of the alternative libraries I've used where it's, okay, you have to spend a week with the documentation and then maybe you can start writing some code. It's no, just drop into an editor that's got, you know, good Scala, not understanding, you know, whether it's VS code or IntelliJ and just start exploring and it's discoverable. And as far as the mathematics stuff, I think some of the alternative approaches are, they basically say, this is math, just transcribed directly into code. Have at it. Where Zio is built on math, there's very solid underpinnings. Isn't John's PhD in math or something? I believe so. John DeGos. And But Zio's approach is, yes, math is what makes all of this work. You don't need to know or care about that. Just if you really want to dive you know, under the covers and start fiddling with that and trying to make changes, you can do that. But if you just want to use this tool... You don't have to know. Any you don't have that. to be a physicist to build something, just an engineer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So speaking of exploration, you have uh, considered the possibility of doing a, um, like a, a recorded exploration or, a, you know, something that you're going to do online where you play with Zio code. Has that? Uh, live stream Twitch? Yeah, live stream. Uh, yeah, I, I've done a few <laughs> Twitch streams. It's certainly low quality at this point sure um but if but i mean i like the idea of somebody going in and saying 
well, I don't know what I'm doing here. And I can kind of like poke at it and, and eventually get something to work. I think that could be super yeah. helpful. Yeah. I think the IDE dot driven development mm -hmm. where you can explore by just hitting dot mm -hmm. on something. And there's a lot of power to that. And I think Zio is really optimized for that experience. Whereas like, it's one of the reasons why I don't think type classes are used at all in Zio nope. because you lose that explorability, the oh. dot completion, yeah. the, the list of options that come up in the world of type classes. The type classes and implicits, you just really don't have to yeah, just, yeah. bother with that. You know, you're just using plain old data types yeah. and it's, it, it's really liberating and you know, some people might say that that's discarding what makes Scala Scala, you know, the implicit mechanism. You know, it's one of its defining features. But, or it's an experiment that maybe isn't applicable everywhere. Yeah. And you can do so much without it. But circling back to ZO2 in regards to naming all these operators, yes, there have been really astounding fundamental changes that they've made. But then I think equally important is just going through and renaming almost every single method, even the basic ones. With this and, idea of usability in mind. Yes, mm -hmm. of if something was just an apply method before, now in most cases, it, that apply method might still be there, but we also have a named variant of it where, because that is one thing that some people get tripped up on in the Scala world is... How do you look these things up? Yeah, and apply, it, it's so generic. So things like apply or fold I was talking to John recently and he was saying that he really doesn't like fold. He doesn't want to send people in that direction. He wants them to instead, because with Zio, if you use a fold, you have to provide the behavior for the error case and the success case. Mm. And you pass those both into fold. Mm. And that's familiar to some people. It's very, it's a broad concept, but in Zio, you should prefer to just say, all right, on one line, we're going to do our catch errors and define our behavior there. And then after that, we'll just do a normal map call. And that's mm -hmm. going to apply to mm. the success value. And that's easier to think about. I think it is much more direct and it just... Well, and it's more granular too, which is what we're always trying to do with functional programming. Mm -hmm. just, what's the smallest little piece? And fold can make sense to some people of you're taking this one data structure and you're turning it into a different one. So you could say that's this abstract fold concept. But there's but, no reason you can't have the fold and then have the more problem domain oriented combinators on top of that. <laughs> yeah. And I think that is one of the goals of Zio again. I'm, I'm, I try to keep revisiting mm -hmm. that. Sure, that question. That, that question here is they want to solve problems. They don't want to transcribe clever ideas into code. They want to give you all of these tools that map very smoothly into 
whatever business problem you're solving. Mm. And I think ZO2 embodies that way more than ZO1 ever mm. did of just all the names have this unified approach and previously like you had Z managed and ZO and Z streams and their method names were similar, but there were so many ways that they slightly diverged from each other. They were written by different developers separated by years, but now with ZO2, we have these codified naming styles of if you have two variations of a method, like for each and for each par, previously that might've been par for each, but now everything's the, consistent. So yeah. And the, the problem with that is going back to the dot completion. Mm -hmm. Yep. If you had for each and then par for each, those aren't anywhere close to each other in the so alphabetical listing. But now everything gets more narrowly defined the further you go into the name. Mm -hmm. So yeah. if you're in the neighborhood of the method that you want, then you can just look at the suffix of each of these names mm -hmm. and then decide, okay, for each or for each par or for each par discard for when you don't care about the yeah. return value. That's really well thought out. And this is one of the things I, I had an epiphany the other day, why I like Python so much. And it's because the developers, the community or whatever, they don't just get the first, they don't just take the first solution that they come up with and say, okay, that's cast in stone forever. Now they keep trying and trying and redoing it and not stopping until they get something that's truly elegant. And so I really appreciate when somebody does that. And, and, and to if, be able to have that evolvability, yes. there's another piece of it that you worked on for ZO2, which mm -hmm. was some of the Scholafix rules. So maybe talk about some of those, because I think that's an important thing is like, we need to support the evolvability as people, mm -hmm. as things Because otherwise you get stuck and you, you have this old thing that's really crufty, but everybody has to use it because that's too hard where we stopped. Yeah. It's too hard to evolve. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the Scala fix rule, and we still have it, and it still solves some of the migration pains. And I think up until probably RC three or four, it was covering almost everything. But then in those last few release candidates, the changes got even more significant. And Scalafix, as impressive as it is, it is very limited in what you can do in a single migration. Pass or? Yeah, because if you're going from version 1 to 1 1.1, you can only apply one Scalafix rule to that. So you can't say, I want to run this update and then this update and then this update. You can't chain them. You can't chain them. You can't compose these things together, which is very jarring. If very you're unfunctional. To... Yes, yes. And so you end up doing this, like mutating in place of your source code and we made so many changes with ZO2 that for any given piece of code, there might be two or three updates that need to be applied to that same token 
in your source. And we're still looking at that and trying to improve it. But yeah, we, we, we kind of reached the, the upper limit of what Scala Fix could do. And the only way to really work around that would have been to say, okay, we have Scala 2.0 pre or something oh, and try to have people migrate through multiple intermediate steps just for the sake of Scala fix, yeah. which, you know, could have solved more problems, but would have been very unfamiliar to people mm, of, yeah. you know, so is this actually 2.0 or it's yeah. this kind of weird yeah. nether state in between. So thankfully we, we can still iterate on the Scala fix rule, even now that 2.0 is out and we can make improvements to it that can change separate from 2.0 itself because people just download that from the web anytime they run it. So it's, it's, it's not a panacea, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's something you help make better for the Scala 2 release. And, yes. And it's a tool that people can use if they're migrating from Z01 to Z02 and ease some of the pain, not 100%. But. Yeah. So that was one of the things I worked on for Z02. But I think the more significant thing that I worked on was Zio test mm -hmm. for this release. And... It originally started as just a little hackathon project of, hey, I think we can knock this out in a couple days. We want to <laughs> we want to share layers between our Zio tests. And one of the interesting thing about each Zio test is an instance of Zio itself, and it's. A little strange when you first encounter that, but Zio applications, once they're fully built, that's just an instance of the Zio type. But then inside of that, it's all these composed Zios. So you have this enormous tree of Zio types, but they all compose into this one thing. And that's what lets you, you know, take a fully formed application and compose it with another application. And in the test it's space. It's all the way down. It really is. And for our tests, you have a top-level spec file, but then you have a suite inside of there, which is a Zio, and then you have possibly more suites nested inside or just individual test cases, and these are all just more Zios. And that means that all of the cool machinery that is available to you for the ZO type is available for your tests. And one of the things we wanted to facilitate was layer sharing between separate test files. So if you have some large database that you know, might take 10, 30 seconds to start up. So that's the reason for sharing is because it takes a long time to set up the layers. Sharing yeah. some okay. resource, like mm -hmm. test containers, like you've done mm -hmm. some work with test containers and Zio test, and that's a good place where there definitely are place, there are cases where you want to share your test container across multiple tests. And that could be for yeah the startup reasons or maybe sequential, like you want to run one database 
command and then another database command and and mm-hmm. make sure that you know things mm-hmm. work as expected yeah it could be for sequence efficiency or just to be sure that your code really doesn't interfere with yeah other things mm-hmm. and having one shared entity is a good way of checking that so yeah it ended up being instead of two days i think it was more like six months before (laughs) all was said and done and a a lot of that was interfacing with sbt and the way that it expects test frameworks to behave which it was never written for this style of computation Mm. you know it's much more Kind of object-oriented or imperative-style tests. But you also did something to speed up getting information back from tests so that you could start... You, you wouldn't have to run everything before you got enough information to go, oh, I need to go fix that. Yeah, so previously, you would have this Zeo test, which is just a tree of other Zeo instances, and we would have to execute the entire tree and then we would get the output in one big dump. Mm-hmm. And for a small test file, that would be fine. But as you got into larger and larger tests, you might be sitting there for 20 seconds, not seeing any output at all, and just wondering, is mm-hmm. anything What's actually happened? executing? Yeah. Like, yeah. Do, do I understand this Zeo stuff? Uh, but we had to do that previously because Zeo maximally parallelizes every piece of that tree and for very kind of complex reasons that I don't fully understand I just take it as a given that Adam and John have figured that all out uh each subtree within the tree it can be executed in parallel and it won't interfere it's fine to do. But if you're running everything in parallel and you start just dumping the output naively, it doesn't <laughs> it really make any sense. And so you can't it's, it's completely jumbled up. Mm-hmm. So what I worked on for this streaming output is taking advantage of that tree structure. You would... We, we had talked about a, a talking stick kind of concept mm-hmm. that starts at the top of the tree and gets passed down to the children. And basically every test that's executing is trying to grab the talking stick. And if it's available at their level of the tree, then you're allowed to print out. But if it's some sibling tree that is printing out right now, you can't print anything out. You have to wait for everything in that other area of the tree to finish. So what you do is you just queue up your output and send it up the tree. And you just have to recognize we don't have permission now. There's other computation happening. We're just going to pass it up the line. But because of the tree structure, everything just funnels up and as the bottom areas of the tree complete, we know, okay, now that we've returned to this parent layer, we are free to dump out everything from the children. It's almost like an actor. Hmm. Um, Cause 
I, I mean, I'm hesitant to say yes to mm-hmm. that. Or, exactly. or another example of thread confinement. You know, it's it's almost like the top thing is, oh, we have one quote unquote thread to send output. And these things will come in as little packets. It it is certainly you're dealing with one resource, which is the console Mm -hmm. output. And if if you're just principled about that, well, it's, it's easy to make sure that you can either go one of two directions. You can say, dump everything out as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And you can get away with that if you fully qualify every piece of output. If you mm-hmm. say what class you're in, what suite you're in, what subsuite you're in, what it's your testing noise is. So you'll have maybe 80 characters of description before you actually get to your test assertion. Mm-hmm. So you can do that. There are test frameworks that take that approach. So just fully qualify everything and we can dump it out whenever. Yeah, but that can still make it hard to parse because now Mm -hmm. nothing is grouped together where usually you care about some subset of the test. That's probably what you're focused on. And those can just be scattered anywhere amongst Mm -hmm. hundreds of lines of output. So you can do that or you can say, we're going to just wait until everything completes, make sure it's sorted out and then dump it out. But But you took the intermediate approach. Yeah, we kind of did a a hybrid approach of, okay, we are going to queue things up when it's necessary, but also we're going to eagerly dump stuff out as soon as it's available to us. Hmm. And that was one of those things that just having an effect system made it much easier to reason about Hmm. where printing to the console is an effect. Mm -hmm. And we can be very diligent about where that happens. Hmm. So Zio itself, I think, uses Zio test for its tests, right? Yes. So you have a large code base of tests that you get to evolve the test system on and see how it it impacts things. Yes. How your changes might break something. It was... Good and bad, you know, for (laughs) one, we have thousands of tests that get run. And so it's usually pretty obvious if you've broken something. But if your misstep was that you weren't actually reporting an error to SBT, well, now you might have broken a lot of things, but your test command still... Seems to work. <laughs> says that it passed, but that was just because you weren't actually digesting any yeah. of the failures. You were just dropping them somewhere yeah. Yeah. along the way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it, it it's, it's hard when you're just changing the ground beneath you. And especially because Zio cross compiles to native and Scala JS, and then it can also run within JUnit. So there's mm-hmm. all these different contexts and we would work on something, build it out. It'd be working great in the JVM, all the different JVM versions. And then we'd realize, oh no, this is completely incompatible with what ScalaJS needs uh, to do with its yeah. single threaded approach. Yeah. Have you gotten, um, have you heard much feedback about your, uh, you know, the revamped Scala test? It's 
being used. Nobody's uh, complaining, but <laughs> that's but, a good sign in open source. No, that's a good start. But it's like it seems like some people might go, "Oh wow, this is more responsive or something." Well, I, I think the unfortunate reality is a lot of times the the nice experience you have, you just quietly say to yourself in of your course, office, it should of, be that way. Oh, cool. And then you move on with your day. Right. It's only when there's a problem that you mm -hmm. file a ticket or get on the discord mm -hmm. and make some noise about it. Just fine. Yeah. I don't begrudge people. For yeah. Doing so that. what's your favorite um, new Scala three feature features? Any, Ooh, okay. Any there's, there's a hard turn. Uh, <laughs> I, I think we already talked just about. briefly referenced it with the, the sum and product types, mm -hmm. which to avoid using the jargon, it's just, it's ands and ors right. for your types. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's such a good fit for Zio, not, not to bring everything back to Zio, but it lets you describe your computations where instead of having to put all of your dependencies in some larger super object that contains all of them or extends all of those traits, you just say, I need a user service and a messaging service and a database service. And that is what you see in your type system is mm -hmm. just this and this and this. And which is a product type and one yeah. of the nice features in Scala 3. Yeah. So you don't have to try to come up with this contorted name that covers all of those. Well, your name would likely be user service and database service. And you know, it's well, like, yeah. I wanted to be clear. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Scott is just like, I will create a type without a name that is those types. Right. Because how many times do you have to create a new class just to satisfy some need and you'll never use it again? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, it's and like, you don't even oh, care about its name. No. Yeah. What's and you go, oh, but I have to come up with a name now. You know, and it's like yeah. it uses up your cognitive uh, abilities. When the names just get so long. And oh, stupid. yeah. And if you do jam them all into this, you know, 200 line name, you can't piecemeal provide some of them. Yeah. yeah. Which mm. you can do when the types are just anded together. Right. You can say all right, at this level of our application, I'm going to plug in these two pieces yeah. and that's going to leave four remaining types that I will pass in yeah. at a higher point in the application. And it works in the, the, the mirror image of that is the ORs. And again, that fits really well with Zio for your error channel of saying, you might fail with a user not found error or an insufficient funds or an illegal argument. Things that are really disjoint. Yeah. And to create a new class to represent them would just be maddening. Yes. <clears throat> so instead, you just say, these are the three possibilities. We know it's going to be one of them. And again, you can handle as many as you care to at any level of the application. You can say, all right, here we're going to handle our insufficient funds error and we're going to check some other account and try to you know, get resources from elsewhere. But Zio still makes sure that you handle them all. Yes, mm -hmm. because anything that you don't handle, that's going to be 
sitting in your remaining air channel. Mm -hmm. So that will be passed along. And then mm -hmm. maybe at the end of the world, you have to handle your illegal argument or illegal state or something where, okay, we can't actually recover from this. We right. just need to dump it out, mm -hmm. tell them this blew up. There's nothing we could do. And yeah, so if I'm giving my my one favorite Scala three feature, it's it's ands and ors mm. for types. Mm -hmm. There's there's plenty of other interesting things, and the macros are all re reworked. And Kit and Alexander Yoff, he they are doing very awesome work with that, but that's not really the space that I operate in and just day to day, any single action that you're trying to perform, the ands and ors can very quickly just mm -hmm. come to your assistance. Mm -hmm. yes. And then the compile errors also get really nice. Whereas we're talking about assembling those types that would encapsulate a bunch of and or ors ty types in that case, you don't get a nice error message that says, oh, I need a foo and a bar, and you only gave me a foo. You also need to give me a bar. The error messages that you get are so nice with the mm -hmm. ands and ors. And again, if you have your different error possibilities, where previously they were all just being boiled down to, okay, there's a throwable. Right. This could fail with a throwable. Yeah, you have no <laughs> knowledge of what, and what kind of throwable it is that you need to deal with. So if you were handling three error situations previously that were all, you, you took a throwable, you pattern matched on it, you handled three cases, but then you changed your code and added in a fourth case that was also a throwable. You have no idea that it was non-exhaustive, that your code is non-exhaustive. Yeah, nothing alerts you to that yeah. fact. Yeah. And maybe something that you could have handled at this layer ends up going all the way up yep. to your application level and failing. Like a null pointer exception, for example. Sure. <laughs> but aren't those the easiest thing to solve? <laughs> yeah. You, just, you know, you see it in your logs in production. And... So I feel like I'm now at the point where you guys were when we were just starting this book in terms of, oh, I think I'm starting to get the way Zio was. And I think you guys were kind of there at that point. And now I'm starting to see it, but it feels like I still have a lot of catching up to do. It's been a journey. Oh I mean, yeah. It's uh that has I've very much changed how I think about building programs and testing programs. Yeah. With, with Zio. There's a there's a lot of things that are how I model data. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah, being able to just radically change that the behavior of your application because you can wrap behavior around an existing zeo instance mm -hmm. you can do stuff like add logging or timing actions that's something previously you would have to cobble together mm -hmm. a dozen lines of timing code that's just what you do as a programmer and yeah every single time it was a small wheel, but you were mm -hmm. reinventing it. You had to stop what you were doing and think about something else for a while. Yeah. And now with Zio, you just tack on a dot timed. Or a dot debug. 
Or a dot debug if or you just want retry. to print out the output. Or a dot or a retry. retry. Well, and I do find this idea of being able to say, okay, I have everything set up. Now I'll do this and I'll look for some parallel way to do it. I mean, without having to go, oh, wait, now we have to re-architect the entire program in order to support concurrency, mm -hmm. which is, yeah, the traditional way of doing it. And is there a... Well, I'm, you know, the, the, uh, what color is your function problem where you like, you have to say, oh, this is an async function. And then when I call it, I have to say, oh, wait, I have to do special thing. It seems like, I mean, are there things like that in Zio or is it just transparent everywhere? The, the asynchronous is transparent. It, okay. That is just handled. Uh, and now one of the other main features of ZO2 I should be sure to mention is the automatic blocking. So historically, if you have blocking code, it's on you as the developer to flag that and handle it on the right thread pool. You have to indicate that. Now with the new runtime system and all this behind the scenes Which was stuff created done, during the release candidate. Yeah. Yeah. Now it is intelligent enough to see, okay, is this long running process that you're executing, is it actually executing and making any sort of progress or is it just sitting still? And once a certain amount of time passes, and this is something you can configure is how, how, much, how, how long how, it waits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But once it identifies that it says, Oh, you are actually a blocking call. We're going to send you over to this other thread pool where you can block and wait and not interfere with the rest of the application. So it turns it from a, um, a, coroutine, a coroutine call to a thread call. Um, I don't know the actual implementation. Uh, it does the right thing magically. Oh. I, I won't try okay, to answer okay. that here. Okay, I, I'm not going to give the definitive okay. statement right. there. Yeah. I would just say it's, it's a huge part of your brain that you don't have to dedicate to that problem now mm -hmm. where you might be just a really advanced, experienced developer where you know every possible call that can block in your domain and if you're at your best you can recognize those and properly categorize them but on a bad day maybe not on a bad day you're focused on other things you yeah, just had a frustrating meeting the amount of focus you have to have to look at every single step and make sure that it works in a concurrent situation. I just don't want to have to think about resources anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I just want to imagine it's, that it's I have really enough. Yeah. Always. And it, <laughs> we probably should have led with that feature because that really is impressive. Yeah. Well, there's another related one, which is the automatic resource management, which is in Zio, was a new addition in Zio 2 somewhere in the RC. Having scope as part of your environment. Yep. And I have not fully explored that yet. I just know it it's yet another thing that is now codified in our types and it's in the environment, which gives us much more control over it. And so you're saying and, the memory management can be controlled statically rather than dynamically. 
I don't know if I'd say the memory management. It's really about resources that you open and close. Oh, oh, resources. Okay, yeah. not just mm -hmm. memory. So this is right. Z managed went away. Okay, basically. Yeah, you used and to have so to do it. So it became incorporated into the into the now it's just the part of the environment. I see. So wow. the interpreter now has knowledge of opening and closing resources. Oh, mm -hmm. oh. and so that's a good one. It solves or at least attempts to solve the issue of we want this tool to be usable by people of nearly all skill levels. Mm. I don't know if it's your first day ever writing a line of code. It's probably still going to be a bit of an uphill climb for you, but the idea is you'll be able to onboard new team members that are just out of college or relatively early in their software career and they've been working in a language where they don't care about blocking or in a domain where they don't care about that and they can basically just start writing code and have the blocking managed for them and maybe in the extreme cases where you need very fine-grained control you might still have to take over but for most cases you just use the operators you want and if something's blocking let the combined experience and all the thousands of person hours that have gone into zeo and its runtime manage that for you yeah because it's it's always working at the best of its ability. Mm. It, it it doesn't have an off day. I remember way way back early resource management things, um, writing in C, and it was just like, well, I, I want to read the file, so I've oh, got to open it. Now you can read it. And it's like, and then the program will end. So, and I still, you know, I'm I'm going. I think the operating system eventually goes and cleans up the open file handles, right? Doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I don't remember. Well, maybe you didn't back then. I have no idea. And that little piece of code, instead of being this thing that you can now drop into a larger application, it's this cursed piece where <laughs> if you do put that into a large code base, eventually you're starved of resources because you just run out of file handles <laughs> you meant it to be executed as a script and then disappear and well even as care. a script i don't know that it wasn't screwing things up yeah. right you... but it was just like and memory allocation it was really just a very narrow i guess you could almost say selfish immediate look at and i've now since seen it in other young programmers it's like well, it works. Stop complaining, you old so-and-so. Yeah, it's, it's selfish, it isolated code yeah. versus something that is team-friendly and right. that you can just say, mm -hmm. all right, I spent a couple hours on this. I can put that into practice or just drop it in to this larger project and actually take advantage of that rather than, oh, that was just burned time it solved this one thing and is not appropriate anywhere else so zo2 fewer foot guns that's... <laughs> yeah far fewer we keep the foot guns locked in a cabinet that's right exactly. yeah you, you have to you have to go put in the code and yeah. get them out and load them and, <laughs> yeah. you know. 
It must be this tall to use this foot gun. <laughs> yeah, if you want to make an unsafe call in ZO2, it's outrageous how many times you have to write the word unsafe now. I yeah. think it's I think it's four separate times. It's like unsafe dot unsafe <laughs> and then runtime unsafe right run unsafe. I didn't know it's... at the time. I thought, you know, I did the thing that I saw in the instructions. It worked. There wasn't any flag that was saying, but if I had to write unsafe at, at all, yeah. it's like, oh, I'm not sure. I, I don't this feel like feels unsafe. It's, it feels, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I'm not that comfortable with this for some reason. Yeah. Maybe it's that word. Um, yeah. To, so to have that, I, I really like the uh, self-documenting um, names of these things. That's, yeah. to me, that, that could be a whole study for computer programming in general. So like just naming things so that they're look upable, they show up with the dots, they're in the you know same region. So you are actually comparing things, all that. That's brilliant. Some people might think it's a trivial detail and it's not going to make a big difference at the end of the day. But I, I think it drastically changes how many people have a good first experience and think, mm -hmm. oh, okay, this is something I can use rather than I'm not good enough for this. I need to just go back to the quote unquote dumb style of programming because I'm not I can, worthy of using this I can this get tool. something to work there, but here it looks like I have to learn this vast I have to learn functional and I have to learn this vast array of category classes theory. or category <laughs> theory or all this stuff and it's just I actually have to write some code at some point, and I don't see where that happens <laughs> in this situation. I mean, I've had this feeling when looking at this stuff. So, yeah. But on that note, it seems like we've probably super fun. Enough. Yeah, yeah. this was really congrats good... on ZO2. Thanks for your contributions. It is. Awesome. I was well, one small stuff. piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I... but... Yeah, I, I stand in awe of my coworkers as Which, I verge. Isn't that and... a great thing to have in a job to be able to go, all my coworkers are so much better than me. And I, I will learn so much from them. The the people in charge should be in charge. They didn't just they weren't in the right place at the right time and lucked into their position. Or somebody's college roommate. Yes. <laughs> there was no just luck of the draw there. Mm -hmm. They are the ones leading the charge, mm -hmm. doing the difficult work, mm. getting feedback and just continually refining things. And it's just so much fun to be in the room and watch that all take place. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Well, thanks, Bill. Yeah. Thank you all. <laughs>